the Webhawk News Podcast for Friday, January 28th. I'm Jim Cates. Sarah Treadwell is a new graduate student at UW-Whitewater, but she is hardly a stranger to the campus. She started out here a while back as a music performance major in the vocal area, uh, completed a degree from Southern New Hampshire University in, what was it, writing in English, right? English and nonfiction yeah. writing. Very good. And uh, now is with us in the Department of Communication. We are very happy to have her. And uh, she's doing some science reporting. This is uh, Sarah's great passion. She goes by the moniker Space Case Sarah on the web. Look for her on all popular social media accounts. And welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We've got a ton of stuff to talk about this semester. I I have a feeling you and I could do a regular series and we'd probably (laughs) never run out of stuff. But I did want to start just by talking to you today. Um, As as I've told uh, several people by now, I think Sarah is an unusual person. (laughs) And uh, just one indicator of this, which we'll start out with today, uh, not more than a month or so ago, you and a friend made just a little outdoors trip <laughs> just a to one. <laughs> uh, the base camp of Mount Everest in Nepal. Uh, I did a little research on this yesterday. I was looking at, at some sites from uh, National Geographic, various sites on the web, a lot of photography. Fascinating. I will admit to you, Sarah, that merely reading and looking at this stuff scared the hell out of me. <laughs> the Everest base camp is at about 17,500 feet in Nepal, not far from Kathmandu, and yes, the Bob Seger song <laughs> has been running through my mind for uh, a, a week or so now. If you guys are not familiar with it, look it up. It's a good one. Why the Everest Base Camp? Wow, it's so far away, and it is on the borderline of being, even the base camp, really kind of dangerous. It, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. And uh, kind of funny story, yeah, I went with my boyfriend, and the first thing he did when we landed in Kathmandu was to play that song. Okay. So. <laughs> did you find Bob Seger there? We did not. You know, um, no, but we I, I saw quite a lot, um, and it was, yeah, an amazing experience. I kind of feel like I saw two Nepals. One was the Kathmandu mm-hmm. experience, and one was base camp. But, yeah, base camp is not um, – I wouldn't suggest it if you're not – somewhat of a moderate fitness level and uh and that you are also looking for kind of a bit of a risky but amazing adventure for one thing uh, i just learned this by looking at the web and i was thinking what's the highest i've ever been on there's somewhere around 10 or eleven thousand feet in colorado yeah and of course colorado has all those famous peaks at at fourteen thousand feet and one reason the Everest Base Camp is at 17.5 is because, according at least to the web, the human body cannot really sustain itself above about 18,000 feet. No. You go that high for the long term, it will kill you. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you are right at the margin yeah, there of survivability. Right at the death zone, yeah. And it's... what was that like? Oh, wow. So... You know, it it honestly was like you take steps and it feels like you just ran a marathon. You are just panting. And it also really, 
it does mess with your head a little bit in the sense that you, you just kind of get a little tunnel vision feeling. And I know now how people can fall asleep and not wake up at those kind of elevations because I honestly had a couple of times where I was like, I could just lay down. I could, I could just go to sleep. It just, it's high. It's very, very high. Um, and you know, it's funny when people talk about going out to Colorado and summiting these mountains, you know, we spent a good chunk of time at those, those 12, 13, 14,000 yes. feet. You know, it's not just going up and then coming back down. You mm -hmm. spend a consistent amount of time hiking at those elevations. So there's not really a great way to prepare you for mm -hmm. that high of climbing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And actually to speak to the risk of it, there is a section on that trail that is a memorial for hikers that have died, particularly really? summiting. Um, no one's ever, to my knowledge, died doing the Mount Everest Base Camp tra Trail, but there have been plenty of people who have summited and have died, uh, usually coming back down because you are supposed to carry oxygen with you. And if you don't hit certain points, you need to turn around. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't do that. And so they get to the top and then they run out of oxygen on the way down. So how do you get to the base camp. You are hiking to the base camp. You fly into Kathmandu. Correct. And I noticed, I look, I was looking on the map, you know, they're like, wow, where is that? I'm on Google Earth. Yeah. I'm <laughs> looking at this and I think, wow, Kathmandu itself is 60 or 70 miles, I think, from base camp. So how do you get specifically to base camp? At what point do you start walking and you're gaining some altitude? There? Yeah. So you fly into Lukla, um, which is the world's most dangerous airport. Um, yeah. And so you fly in on these very old propeller planes um, and the air or the runway on the airport is not even. So you actually land at a lower peak and then go up a hill um, and it's a very short runway um, and that's why it's so dangerous. Uh, so you fly in in, I mean, that is the smallest plane I've ever been on in my entire life. It was uh, a little scary. I'm not going to lie, but actually taking off was more scary than landing. Um, but yeah, you fly into Lukla, which is at 9,000 feet, and then you start hiking this trail. And the trail goes up the mountain, and I'm going to say up in a very generous way because it's really up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> um, and uh, you stay at tea houses along the way, um, which are basically like hotels, um, but they're not heated. So that, that's a bit of a stretch. But yeah, you go up the, the trail and it's very varied and, you know, there's just different um, landscapes and there's suspension bridges and there's animals and it's just, it's amazing. So it's nothing like you think when you hear Everest, you think snow and, you know, and hitting that peak, it's absolutely nothing like that. It's um, much more diverse in both the the landscape, and also the experiences you get to have along the way. How long does it take hiking to get there? So to do it round trip, it is a about a 14-day trek. Um, you spend nine days going up because you need to stop periodically to adjust to the altitude. Um, and then it's about 100 miles round trip. So it's, oh a, it's a big trek. <laughs> and when you get there, and I was reading this online because, I, of course, I've heard of Everest Base Camp. There is also one in China, but that is inaccessible to Correct. most people. Yeah. Um, so most uh, most Westerners would come to the base camp on Nepal, mm -hmm. the, the side in Nepal, and the other side is in China. What the region we would know is Tibet. And uh, uh, since Edmund Hillary and the Sherpa Tenzing Norgay 
uh, went up there in 1953, the first to summit the mountain, uh, that we know of at least. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been many, many people uh, who have done it. Um, at least 300 people have died in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are, uh, I was surprised by this, at least according to the web, about 40,000 hikers a year who actually visit the Everest base camp and many of the pitch tents there you see the you see the pictures is this colorful array of tents mm -hmm. and then there are people on their own there are commercial expeditions um, with with cooks and big tents and uh, all sorts of gear and stuff like that uh, so what was it like when you got to the base camp itself? So I went during off season so there actually was nobody at base camp because uh, you cannot summit it during the winter, and that's when I went. And um, to your point, there are about 40, yeah, I heard about 30,000 people that maybe visit per year. And the peak season is actually more in the fall. And so that's when the trail is super busy. I, I read a lot before I went, obviously, and a lot of people suggested if you want clearer weather and less crowds, going in the winter is more preferable. Um, you just have to be prepared for it to be cold, which it was. <laughs> How cold are we talking about? Uh, you know what? Not nearly as cold as the Midwest right now. Okay. So um, that was kind of something that was a little bit funny to us. The guides kept going, oh my gosh, aren't you guys cold? Why aren't you wearing hats? And we were like, this is nothing. This is Their yeah. winters are more, much more mild and temperate mm -hmm. than ours. So I would say, you know, during the day we would get up in the 40s still. Um, and then at night, I, I have no idea how cold it would get at night. It would it would definitely drop below freezing. And the rooms that you stay in are not heated. So you basically, you would eat dinner and then you bundle up in your sleeping bag because it is just freezing. <laughs> and then, of course, you got this thermal gear and it's all got to go on it, your back. Yeah, you know, uh, there are a lot of layers and you just have to be okay with the fact that you're not probably going to be dressing and undressing your clothes. You just, you kind of, you accept that you are a smelly traveler on this amazing journey um it was pretty funny to me coming back down we would pass by other groups and i could tell that they like they smelled so clean and i was like you you fresh young people um yeah. <laughs> so yeah it uh it you definitely have to layer up but you would layer up so that you could lose the layers because in that you know you're up so high and the sun is very direct and you know uh it would get warm during the day for sure i mean i got to the point where i was wearing Actually, I think the shirt I'm wearing right now is one of the ones, just like a single layer. So not negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit, like what we woke up to here in the Whitewater region. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was it was cold at night. I will I will definitely say I was a little bit of a wimp with that. Who who did you meet along the way and up there? We're talking mostly Americans, French, Britons, Westerners, people oh, from so Asia, people many. from all over all over yeah. yeah yeah you get a lot of people from india because it's very close right um but in my group in particular and i did go with a commercial group oh you um, did okay i did so when you were talking about the tents and you know cooks and stuff like that that's a commercial group for summiting um the commercial mm -hmm. group that i went through g adventures amazing group they they have they provide sherpas and porters um and then we prearrange where we're going to stay along the trail, which is, in my opinion, the way you should probably do it. But in my group, we had someone from Australia. We had three British people. Um, where else? Someone who was originally from South Africa, Germany. Yeah, just all over. So it was a really diverse and fun group because that was also a unique part of the experience is getting to sit and compare, you know, like what what foods we would normally eat for breakfast mm -hmm. or food was 
I think everyone got really stuck on food after a while mm. because you uh, you can only eat dalbat so many times, which is the traditional meal <laughs> in <laughs> Nepal, and then you start getting a little bit homesick for your American foods and yeah. you know German foods and Australian foods. So, <laughs> had you had any any previous mountaineering or serious hiking no. experience? <laughs> so I have this problem where I get an idea in my head and I just do it. <laughs> I just go. So I had wanted to do this for about three years. I had seen someone else do it and. He was sharing pictures, like I said, of these like amazing suspension bridges and animals that they have um, mules and they call them yows. They're a crossbreed of cows and yaks uh, that will move food and goods up and down the mountain. So he's sharing videos and pictures of all these things. And I just I was like, oh, this is not what I expected what I would have expected a, a Mount Everest trek to look like. So I started like any good millennial YouTubing it up and down, left and right. And, uh, and I got it in my head that this was something I was going to do. I was going to do it someday. And I just happened to uh, meet someone who was also kind of that, yeah, let's do it. And my, uh, my boyfriend, he was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So wow. we just decided to go. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me, tell me about the, the culture, the, the Sherpas. Yeah. Uh, we, we throw the term around sometimes excessively. You know, say, get, get me a couple of Sherpas to help me with that. Yeah. But the, the Sherpas are, are is actually a, a regional and, and like an ethnic group. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, they're a people. Um, and they're very, very, very proud of what they do. That is really their, their main line of industry. That's the main thing that they have in Nepal. So they're um, very proud of what they do and uh, very aware of, of the industry that this is. And so very accommodating, very kind, really awesome people. I mean, for example, our head, our lead Sherpa who guided us back down the mountain, we hit a snowstorm and the trail got very slick, especially, you know, obviously going downhill. And he would, anytime there was spots that it looked slick, he would make an effort to kick extra snow to add a little traction. Mm. I mean, the whole way down. It mm. just, the the effort that they put in is phenomenal. And I'm actually really excited and proud to say too that like most of them friend requested me on Facebook afterwards. Oh, and so oh, cool. like they'll, okay. they'll shoot me messages and pictures every now and again and just be like, hi Sarah, how are you? You know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I, I just, I'm in awe of what they can do mm-hmm. because they carry our big duffel bags for mm-hmm. us. And they strap them on their head and it must be about 60 pounds that they just, I mean, they just, they walk up and down as if it doesn't affect them at all. I mean, we're sitting there with our, with our little day packs going, (gasps) and they just zip right by (laughs) carrying 60 pounds, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh. You think as a people, they've become acclimated to it over time? I I mean, even in a, in a long-term like genetic sense? Maybe, you know, I did get to have a really nice conversation with, the owner of one of the tea houses and she was telling me um so most of the families that live up in these mountain villages what they do is they actually send their kids down to boarding school in Kathmandu um starting at five which just like oh man I can't imagine sending my five-year-old a three-day trip down the mountain but um she said that even when they come back up that they still sometimes struggle with altitude my understanding is that these people who are actually going to summit the mountain, they come and then they live at the base camp for a few days yeah, or they, a few weeks. Yeah, they do. To get acclimated. And then comes a point where, I guess probably based on weather forecasts, they say, okay, we're going now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even if you're um, doing base camp 
up to one or if you're going to summit. Everybody comes through Namche Bazaar. That's like the big town on the mountain before you go up. And everyone will go up from that point because you cannot access base camp by helicopter. So, uh, yeah, they'll they'll go up and then whoever is summiting, they'll stay at base camp one, which does turn into its own sort of mini village with, yeah, um, food tents and medical tents. And, and then they will summit. To your point again, I, I do agree. There is something, you have to have some some sort of special factor to you to summit. Because, I mean, I've been up to, uh, you know, 17,500 feet and I think I'm good. <laughs> I think I am good. And I just can't, I think there's just, you got to have some, some sort of it factor to want to do that. And it also is very expensive and it's, and it takes a lot of time and preparation. This is why people die because they don't want to waste all that effort and not get to the top. I did read, I was looking on the web and, you know, the, the, the personality profile of a person who would, would attempt to summit Mount Everest. They talk about thrill seekers, adrenaline junkies, people who almost in a, in a strange sort of way need to confront Mm. fear. And I'm thinking, of course, at that point, I'm thinking, okay, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's actually some some science, some neuroscience behind this, too. They think that people who particularly were raised in environments with unstable caregivers start developing neural loops of highs and lows. And so, you know, the stress and then that relief of that stress or the relief, I'm sorry, of that stress those loops of up and down and up and down, their brains get so used to it, they actively seek that out as they get into adulthood because it's just a comfortable way for them to live and and they get bored if they don't have the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows. I I would say (laughs) I might have a little bit of that. (laughs) Um, But I do know my limits. and, And like you were saying, kind of like being an astronaut, you have to know what your limit of risk is that you're comfortable with. And we do, you know, speaking of upbringing and people, um, to you, you name a person who's often, uh, whose name often comes up in this context. People used to say that Bill Clinton was a person in some very odd way, you know, despite being obviously a brilliant man, he was somehow addicted to risk, hmm. which is why maybe what led him to do some things that weren't very smart. Yeah. Uh, and I won't get into details, but... <laughs> Uh, this is it, not that it, kind of podcast. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there are places you can find that. Um, and, you know, so and this is also very common with, with entrepreneurs. Yeah. I see you know, every entrepreneur starts out with everyone around them telling them, you're out of your mind, you're going to lose all your money, this is a ridiculous idea. And so these people, in a way, are they are certainly less risk-averse than most of us. Yeah. And it's interesting reading about these folks on the web because the term people describe it usually do not use the term abnormal. <laughs> They'll just use the word atypical yeah. or unusual. Yeah. And, and of course, certainly in a, a capitalist society such as ours, the world kind of runs on the energies of people like this. Yeah. And you look out there and you think, well... I might do, I might not do this, but I can see where there's a place in the world for people who do. Yeah. Yeah. I would think not just adverse to risk, but also comfortable with failure. Yes. Right. Exactly. And, and yes. that was something I was very prepared with on Mount Everest that if, I mean, and they, they force you, you have to buy insurance to up to getting 
a flight off of the mountain if need be. So you have to go in there knowing there is a chance and the chance is pretty significant, even for going up to base camp one. Actually, our our guide group was like, we're impressed everybody made it. <laughs> wow. um, usually some there's some people who don't. Uh, so you have to be okay with this idea of taking a risk and it not working out. Um, and then, right, that obviously extends to, well, are you comfortable with that also including your life? Yes. <laughs> um, that might be my line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, it, it definitely is a unique mindset that I wish I could, uh, you know, I, I honestly feel like I have some of that because in the past year, not only did I go to Mount Everest, but I also got scuba dive certified and went diving with sharks, you know, Excellent. and, um, you know, I kind of decided to go back to school to get my master's just within a... That's the real risk right there, I'll tell you. <laughs> right? <laughs> But, you know, it's one of those things that I also think that I've had enough failure that I'm like, ah, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose getting your arm bit off by a shark. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I looked at, uh, if you go to Wikipedia, it's fascinating. Uh, there is a chart on there listing every person who has known to have died uh, attempting to summit Everest. And there are 300 and some. And all the ways they died, earthquake, avalanche, falling into a crevasse. Right. Uh, all like OMG, yeah. uh, uh, falling ice, those ice structures that yeah. fall on your head. Uh, yeah, uh, we saw two avalanches. Uh, yeah, uh, avalanches, yeah. pulmonary conditions of various sorts. Yep. And, of course, there were people, you hear these horror stories of people who secreted bottles of oxygen at strategic points on the way down, and then they got there and found out that someone had taken them. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And you always see the picture of the guy they call Green Boots. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, he's been frozen there for how many years yeah. now? It's, oh. I have an update to that too. Yeah. So during COVID, they decided to go collect some of the bodies that have been stuck up there, and Green Boots was one of them. Really? Yeah. So we actually, I mean, it's a little morbid to say we kind of had a joke, but we were like, well, that's a, that was a mile marker. You know, like that was a marking point to yeah. know where to turn. Yeah, it's like, what if people get lost because Green Boots is gone? Where's Green Boots? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it would, it, it, it would have to give way to a, a certain dark humor at some oh, point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That kind of risk. Absolutely. Yeah, you, I mean... Like I said, summiting is kind of a whole different beast than what we did. But there was, oh, one day in particular where, and they they, they warned us. They said, this is going to be the hardest climb day. But you just don't realize how hard that climb day is going to be until you're in the thick of it. And you just keep going up and up and up. And you're looking at the tree line and you're like, the, the top has to be somewhere up there. And you just go and you go and you go. And then you just... Some people started playing music. I tend to sing for some reason mm. when I get <coughs> in these states of just like, I don't opera, know what else to do. Yeah. Pop, what are you saying? I'm curious. Oh, um, yeah, opera. I don't know. It just kind of depends. Okay. Give us um, a good aria on the yeah. way up. Yeah, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, the, the humor you definitely develop. It's unique and it's it's fun and you know we have kind of like inside jokes now oh, as yeah. a group of oh, sure. of the funny things that people said and we've kind of carried them on and we've joked about making t-shirts and stuff as a group now just you know <laughs> wow. uh, as a way to remember it but yeah it's it's uh it is definitely like I said at the very beginning if you were not the most physically active person I would highly discourage you from maybe jumping into base camp trek yeah. on your first you know big sort of mountaineering adventure. So once you got to base camp, how long did you stay there? 
We stayed there about an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, honestly, once you're there, you forget about how high it is because you just... So the the base camp area is empty. So there's no tents, but there is a big rock that they spray paint. And it says, you know... Saw that on the Yes. Um, Yes. So it says base camp. And so you climb up on the rock, you take plethora amounts of pictures and uh you just kind of hang out and and uh enjoy the experience of just getting there because it's once you get there you just turn around and you go back you don't stay there because base camp is on a glacier so that's why there's no tea houses up there and there's tent cities you cannot build anything permanent because it will just move and, and get destroyed so once you get there yeah you only spend about an hour and it's just sort of like take all the pictures as many as you can because we're going to turn around and we're going to go back down and can you see the summit of everest from from base camp you cannot actually from base camp no um the mountain range blocks the summit peak at many different points along the trail. There are some points where you can see it super well, um, including getting close to base camp, but once you're at base camp proper, you cannot see it anymore. Um, Because it takes, I mean, if you're at base camp and you're going to summit the mountain, it takes like three or four days to get up there. Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's uh, only though 12 miles from base camp one. It's not that far. Mm -hmm. So that just is a testament. But it's a vertical rise of about 10,000 feet. Yeah. How hard that, how hard that is. Well, incredible. And and you're in the death zone. So there's, Mm -hmm. you, you know, there are people who summit without oxygen. I think that those are the really, 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 I don't know, risk, uh, (laughs) prone people. It is amazing to see that peak of Mount Everest and realize you are looking at the top of the world. Like Absolutely. nothing else is higher than nothing that. Higher. It's yes. amazing. Yes. It was beautiful. And we again went in the wintertime when usually the skies are clear and we had spectacular views of the mountains. So Excellent. yeah, I mean I can't imagine going in like September when the weather can be a little more finicky and then being like, over there you would see Everest, but there's just clouds. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Be, right. Um yeah, so I, we were very fortunate on the way up to have amazing weather, phenomenal views. Like I said, a snowstorm moved in on the way back, <laughs> so that was a little bit difficult. But so you are uh, you're getting into science writing. I know we'll, we'll I talk about that some more. We yeah. we'll, uh, we could uh, uh, do another interview about your oh science rather unusual path in life, uh, which <laughs> and I love people with unusual paths in life. They are interesting and fun and and of course obviously they're they're really good podcast guests i'll tell you that (laughs) um uh, but for you what's next you're an adventurer on two tracks one is of the mind yes and i I already uh, know i i could certainly call you an autodidact a person who teaches herself and is interested in learning and 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 so part of it's in here but part of it also is in terms of actual Going places and doing things. So, doing so you've already uh, dived with sharks and survived that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you ever jumped out of an airplane? I haven't yet. I'm thinking about that for my birthday this okay, year. Okay, <laughs> that would be very cool. Uh, uh, jumping off a cliff in one of those bat wing suits, mm, maybe? Maybe. 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 Yeah, okay. It's a little scarier. Uh, yeah. Uh, but so, is, what do you think in terms of adventure? Maybe, maybe closer within the borders of the United States. Yeah. What's next? So. I found this out last week, and I actually had my first meeting with it last night. I actually am selected to be part of a crew of analog astronauts 
at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, which is an analog mission, basically uh, simulating if we were a crew on Mars. And so I'm going to be the crew journalist and I'm going to report on the crew mission and what other individuals are doing because we all bring our own individual projects to the, the mission. So I'm going to be doing that in April, which I think I think I can lay low until April. I don't know if I need to squeeze any more adventure in between <laughs> then. I say that now. We'll see. <laughs> so no uh, no swimming with the piranhas in Brazil or anything like not, that, at least not, not in the short term. Of yet, but these opportunities just seem to fall into my lap. So <laughs> I'm not really sure if something will crop up in between now and April. I don't think so. Okay. So we, <laughs> we will definitely be talking with you again and... and uh, uh, you were doing a, an independent study with me this yes. term at uh, UWY-Water, and uh, so uh, we'll be working on some science reporting, for specifically uh, science and space-related. So Absolutely. Uh, anybody listening, uh, subscribe and tell your friends, and we can all look forward to that. Yeah, so, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Sarah Treadwell, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Uh, I think we're going to have some fun this semester. Oh, I think so, too. Yeah, all right. it's going to be great. The Webhawk News Podcast is an independent production from the University of Wisconsin, Whitewater. I'm Jim Cates. <laughs>